Hello, and welcome to the Language of Mindfulness podcast. This is a podcast for people who want to have more great conversations in your life. You want to connect, you want to speak authentically, and you want to listen deeply. This is how to do it, and it's the real deal. So why should you listen to the Language of Mindfulness? Because in every episode, I'm going to give you tips and guidance I've learned in my pretty extensive career of coaching and practice from the best and brightest in the field of interpersonal communications, public speaking, meditation, group leadership, and somatic psychology. And we're going to have interviews with some amazing people about their groundbreaking work. It's my goal to give actionable and uncommon tips and advice in every episode that you can implement right away. So subscribe or follow now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you don't listen, you're going to miss some great stuff that you just won't hear anywhere else. I'm your host, Brett Hill, and welcome to the Language of Mindfulness. So I am very excited to welcome to today's episode Lodro Rinsler, who is uh, an incredibly interesting person, um, as you will discover for yourself. Uh, let me read a little bit about Lodro first. Um, he's a meditation teacher, actually a full-time meditation teacher, which is a rare thing in the world. And he is the author of seven books. He's the co-founder of MNDFL Mindful Meditation Studios in New York City. Uh, his books, Walk Like a Buddha, and The Buddha Walks Into the Office, which sounds like a prelude to a joke, but, uh, <laughs> but, but these are amazing topics because it's like, what does it mean to walk into work like a Buddha and, and be mindful in the office these days? And oh my gosh, is that ever a big topic these days? There's a big trans transition of business and business models to be more mindful and accountable to our humanity these days. And so this is very on point. Um, so that's one of the reasons he, I wanted to invite him. Um, and uh, these books have both won awards from the Independent Publisher Book Awards. Um, and so that's super exciting. He's taught meditation for 19 years in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and travels frequently for his books, having spoken across the world at conferences, universities, and businesses diverse as Google, Harvard University, and the White House. And you can look up that Google talk, by the way. It's online. Uh, it's worth listening to. He's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, Good Morning America, CBS, NBC. And I read that you also are, uh, write for the Huffington Post occasionally. Uh, as well. So welcome uh, so much. Welcome to the show. Really great to have you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And so help us out, uh, help us understand a little bit about, um, we will get to like what you're doing now, but how was it that you even got started in the mindful, you know, direction? Like what was it that, that launched your whole career and focus um, on the path of mindfulness? Yeah, great question. So I have uh, a weird backstory just in that I was raised within a Buddhist household. My parents had started meditating when they were in their 20s and 30s. And um, by the time I came around, it was just in the household. So I started mm. meditating when I was six years old and then went on to do six. Know, yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you get a say? I mean, did, what did this look like? It was like, Hey mom and dad, what are you doing? I'm just going to sit down next to you and do that. Or was it mom and dad coming to you and saying, Hey, you know, Lord, sit down and, and try this and see what it's like. I mean, how do you get a six year old to do this? 
Yeah, it was very much just in the air. And, you know, I often mm. get that question because I was raised in this Buddhist household and by meditators and things like that. Um, how do I get my kids to meditate? And my answer is always like, just based on my own experience is you don't say, okay, you should go do this. You just do it. And at some point kids do what they do, which is they emulate mm. the people that they love. And, um, yeah. And at that point, you know, because it was just something that was done in the household, I said, Oh, maybe that's something I should be doing. And, you know, I, they sort of stumbled across me sitting there cross-legged, not unlike the way I am right now. And I was just sort of facing a wall, not unlike I am right now. And, um, and I said over dinner, what were you doing? And I said, I was meditating. I said, what does that mean? Uh, sort of asking, you know, trying to figure out what I was attempting to do. And so I was just noticing my breathing and they said, what happens when you get distracted from your breathing? I said, then I would come back to my breathing and um, <laughs> they said, that's it. And you, you know, for anyone who has done mindfulness meditation past, you know, that's basically the full story. Um, yeah, it's not an easy practice because we, those thoughts are very alluring and you sort of want to chase after them and so on and so forth. But you know, it is very simple. It is a simple practice to do. So I did start at that young age and then I started doing like weekend retreats things like that um, when I was about 11 and it sort of continued on in that direction. So by the time I was at university, um, I was running a little meditation group and people were coming and they didn't know how to meditate. And my own naivete, I said, oh, I just assumed everyone would know if they were coming to a meditation group, what they should be doing. So I imported some local meditation teachers who all got sick of driving all the way out. And they basically, mm -hmm. as a result said, you know, you've gone through enough of these retreats and prerequisites for a teacher training. Why don't you go do a teacher training so that you can give the instruction mm -hmm. here? And that's how I got going when I was 18 years old, you know, as a baby, mm -hmm. I, in many ways was not a fully formed adult, but I um, <laughs> did understand this one thing and I could articulate this one thing to some degree. And uh, I've done many other teacher trainings since, and I continue to study with excellent teachers and refine my uh, ability to transmit these, these teachings. But, um, you know, I think that was where it really started was the very young age. And, but, and you stayed with it. It's like you, you started young and as you matured and, you know, kind of unlocked the world as a, oh my gosh, now I'm an awaking, walking adult in the world rather than now it's like, oh, I've got to go find a real job. Somehow you're, you you kept going with mindfulness and teaching uh, meditation as what you, you you're doing as an adult. Yeah, you know I think I had my teenage rebellion at one point or another where you know I said, well, what about you know Judaism? What about Christianity? And I, it was actually I was a religious studies um, major at, at university because I did want to sort of understand them more, but I never really strayed too far away from this practice because it was so helpful for me personally. And right. then after college, I sort of was drafted to, I was served as the executive director for a Buddhist nonprofit and then helped them miraculously out of some of the debt that they were carrying. So they said, well, why don't you go do fundraising for all these Buddhist nonprofits? I did that for a while. And I sort of bounced around, but at the end of the day, that sort of through line of just trying to make the meditation teachings accessible to people was the thing that mm -hmm. went out and it became a very unique thing of, okay, well, maybe that means I'm teaching more. So what did what did you find in terms of trying to make things accessible to people? What what were the were there particular challenges that caught your attention that you feel like oh we need to solve this we need there needs to be some kind of a resource here for people? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's taken myriad forms over the years, for sure. Um, I would say in our current state, I this has sort of been a long-standing gripe of mine, that I do feel like there's a bit of a re-education that needs to happen for many people around meditation. I'm sure you found this yourself, where, you know, people come in and they say, well, I can't do it because I have thoughts. Well, that's not the point. The point isn't to get rid of thoughts. Or, Oops. Right, you know, I have too many thoughts. Everyone else is sitting there looking completely peaceful, and I'm fidgety, so that means I'm bad at it. And a lot of the like, well, I should feel completely relaxed, um, you know, all the time. It should feel like I just got a massage after. None of that is actually necessarily true. You know, people mm -hmm. can have the experience where they sit down to meditate. And then within a few moments, they feel like there's a waterfall of thoughts, one after another, after another, just bombarding them. And it's not like meditation unleashed that. It's been happening all along, but now we're paying attention to it. And now we're saying, oh, I don't know if I want to pay attention to it. So I think there is a little bit of uh, handholding and, and education around this, where it's like, that's completely normal. That's a completely normal thing to experience. And can we continue to sort of persevere until that waterfall eventually becomes a little bit less overwhelming, maybe more like a, a stream or a river? Then sometimes we get yanked away, but we actually have the ability to, to ground ourselves and stay upright and to take, sort of take control of the situation or in, you know, we don't have to get into it right away, but, you know, uh, in, as I've been recently talking about, like taking back our mind, taking back this sort of control. Mm -hmm. of, oh, I don't have to get swept up by every thought that emerges. I can actually make the choice to come back to the present moment more. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so like uh, the practice then of someone starting out and then they become aware of their thoughts or their, and hopefully, you know, their thoughts are, saying, oh, I'm having these thoughts. I'm having these feelings. And that not necessarily being the most pleasant experience for some people and maybe judging that and then backing off because of that and going, I'm no good at this. So what yeah. do you tell someone who's having that experience? Uh, it, it entirely depends on who it is, of course. But I, I mean, when I said the normalization aspect, that's a big part of it that, you know, I always joke when I lead a meditation class and I ask her questions at the end, I assure people that 98% of the time, I'm just going to say, well, that's completely normal. And 2% of the time I'll say, Let's just chat a little after class, but it's even less <laughs> of that. You know, it really is. Most of the time it's just like, oh yeah, you're falling asleep a little bit in meditation. That's very normal. You probably hold your body in a lot of tension throughout the day. And this is the only time you've relaxed it. That's a normal thing. Yeah. It's totally normal for you to have 10,000 thoughts at once. Like that is something that the mind does. does has anyone else ever had that in meditation? Every hand will go up. You know, it is just like, it's a large part of this is the normalization of just what you're going through is, is not a big deal. Um, but there is some element here of uh, saying it does get better over time, you know, and, and just mm -hmm. sort of sharing stories. And I, I'm sure you have a million, you've probably heard a million of, you know, what the benefits are. And I'm not even talking about the scientific benefits per se, although some people really love to um, hear about all of the research that's come out around meditation saying, if you, do a little bit of it every day that you start to see increased gray matter in the hippocampus. You see more activity in the ACC that you are less stressed out. You're more efficient. You're more in productive. The, in the what? You said activity in, in the, the ACC. Yeah. Which is... It's sorry. So what I'm basically talking about is some of the research that's been coming out from Harvard, University of Wisconsin, MIT. Um, it's these various parts of the, I mean, everyone has their own sort of like, area of the brain that they say, but the ACC is the anterior cingulate cortex. And mm -hmm. this is, you know, the role we could say of the ACC 
it's connected with the prefrontal cortex and parietal cortex. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a, by the way, neuroscientist in any stretch of the imagination. So as I go through that, I'm sort of the person that's saying, that's interesting. What does it mean? And what it means mm -hmm. is that when we have more activity there, that we're actually less held by stress. And a lot of these, when people do studies around sleep, you sleep better, it boosts your immune system, mm -hmm. it makes you more creative, whatever. I'm always looking at that. And again, not neuroscientists, you know, the fact that I remember this is already impressive to me. Um, but that it, you know, the bottom line is, oh, you are less held by stress. And what happens when I'm less held by stress? Yeah, there's more room in my mind for creativity. Yeah, I sleep mm. better. Yeah, my body is not held in such a constant state of tension. It's going to heal better. Like there's sort of a no-brainer aspect to it for me, but I'm glad that mm -hmm. the research comes out because it is really important and interesting. But for me, I fall more into that realm of what I was talking about before, which is the subjective stories. You know, all of these stories that I have, and I'm sure you have as well, around just people becoming kinder, more present, more um, forgiving, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm as a result of working with their mind. And sometimes, and I'm sure this is your experience as well, that you look back over your shoulder and you say, how did I even, I'm surprised I didn't even react that way. You know, I'm, surpri I'm surprised I didn't mm -hmm. lose my cool. Maybe it's because I've been meditating. It's often that sort of, <laughs> maybe it's because that's the only thing I can think of. And it is. Like, how did this happen? I, I'm being different and I don't know why. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. And that's, mm. that happens. And that's wonderful that it's sort of, that's where it gets really meaningful for people to actually answer your question more directly. They say, Oh, look, I have a situation where I was less reactive. I was more forgiving. I was kinder. I was, you know, able to release some of the anxiety I was holding, whatever it might be. And it's no one, no longer someone sitting in the front room telling me, this is what you're going to experience. It's me saying, mm -hmm. Oh, there is real benefit to this practice. I know it in my bones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how long does it take for someone you think to get to a place where they have an experience like a direct positive, oh my God, my behavior is different now and I like it. How much, how much work does it take to kind of get there? Because what I'm hearing you say is there's sort of an arc. There's sort of like, what is this? I'm going to get started. Oh my God, my, I'm a mess inside. I don't really like going into this swamp. And, but with some practice, eventually things settle down long enough that you begin to change your neurology to a degree where you can actually have a different experience. Yeah. So about how much effort is involved with that? Yeah, it's uh, I often equate it to picking up a musical instrument, you know, mm -hmm. in the same way, I'm not talented musically personally, but I have a <laughs> lot of friends who are, and you know, they can pick up a musical instrument and they actually pick it up pre pretty quickly. Most people when it comes to meditation are like me, with, with music where it's a sense of you pick it up and you pick it up once and you put it down and you try it again a week later, it's going to still feel a little awkward. You pick mm -hmm. it up a month later, it's still a little awkward. But if we pick it up a little bit every day, we start to actually get some feel to it. We're like, oh, I'm supposed to hold a violin like this. Okay, mm -hmm. this is where it rests. This is where I put my fingers. This is how I hold a bow. And when I do that, and it becomes more familiar, all of a sudden it's not complicated for me to play simple notes or simple scales or simple songs. And it progresses. And before I know it, I'm playing Beethoven or Bach, but I don't even know how I got there. Mm -hmm. It's just, I've been you know picking up this thing for 10 minutes a day. Same thing mm -hmm. with meditation. If we get out of it, what we put into it. So this is also part of that re-education campaign I was telling you about that people think, oh, I should be able to sit down once. And then I either get the benefits or I don't. 
And that is like picking up a violin once and be like, why can't I play beautiful music? Because we haven't learned the skill set <laughs> yet. Here we're just mm -hmm. learning to work with the mind as opposed to learning to work with our, our body. Um, and just like any other training, a musical instrument, learning a language, a physical discipline like karate, you know, the more we sort of show up day in, day out, the easier it becomes for it to just feel embodied. Um, mm -hmm. So for anyone who's done any of those other skill sets, it's exactly like that. And it's just, I, I suppose, you know, I, I have a, a colleague and a mentor who um, his, his partner was telling me at one point that in a large crowd, someone goes, how long until I see the benefits of meditation? And having received this question over and over again, over his many decades of teaching, this person sort of broke out of character and just looked at him and goes, you? Two weeks. And then went on to the next question. <laughs> and I love that because, <laughs> because people want that answer. They want to know, but just give me like an exact thing. And it reminds yeah. me, you know, not to go too far off topic, but you know, I had a lot of meditation students come to me at the very beginning of the pandemic. And they're like, how long is this going to go on for? Like somehow I, as the meditation teacher also secretly had, you know, a lot of degrees <laughs> in virology. Yeah. Right. So like, <laughs> I would just know, um, and it was always this interesting thing of being like, well, we don't know. And could we get used to the not knowing? Could we actually just sort of mm -hmm. open to that experience? And it's the same thing here where it's like, we don't necessarily, I mean, the science would have us say, okay, six to eight weeks, you meditate 10 minutes a day, you're going to see changes in the brain chemistry. That's cool. That's great. But I've also seen people say, oh, it's been three weeks and I feel really different. Or um, mm -hmm. you mentioned Mindful, the Network of Meditation Studios I, I co-founded, you know, we would run something. Uh, where it was, we were like, how do we get people meditating regularly? And we were like, well, mm. we live in a capitalistic society. Let's incentivize them financially. So if you came 30 days in a row, you had your mm -hmm. first month membership. It was very inexpensive. If you came 30 days in a row, you get your next month membership half off. Mm. That's very interesting. So we would have people say, okay, you know, if I'm going to get serious about it, you know, and I could save some money too. Let me do it. And they would do it. And lo and behold, they would feel transformed after that month of just coming to a regular mm. class every single day and actually making that a part of their life. And my favorite story of that is that uh, there's a gentleman um, who is actually my wife that was leading this particular class. Uh, she said at the end, is anyone doing the 30 day challenge? And this guy said, yeah, I actually just finished. And she said, that's amazing. You tell someone, you, like, I'm tired of telling everyone why they should meditate. You to say why they, <laughs> they should meditate. She goes, well, listen, the age of 56, I don't know if I'm this percent, you know, it's a very New York attitude, like you want to get at the percentage. I don't know if I'm this percent more uh, present or this percent more relaxed, but I will say this is the first time at the age of 56, I actually feel like I have the tools and know how to love myself. Wow. That's not something Harvard or MIT or anyone else is tracking, you know, like that's just a beautiful yeah. story of someone like, <laughs> yeah, I changed the relationship to myself. And it is, it's like every time, <laughs> I mean, we, we talked about the like very basic meditation instruction before, right? Like we take an upright and relaxed posture. We follow the body breathing. We notice when we drift off, we come back to the breath. What voice mm -hmm. do we use when we drift off? Is it the voice you jerk? Why are you like this? Why everyone else is sitting so quiet and you're just impossible? <laughs> or is it like, Hey, it's not a big deal. This happens to everyone. Just come on back to the breath, mm -hmm. that sense of gentleness. And I suspect that this individual sort of was working more in the latter where he didn't use meditation as yet another way to beat himself up, but in fact, as a way to treat himself with more kindness. And that just got into the bones.
So I, I, I think mm -hmm. that, you know, meditation, we have this great sense of like, yeah, it makes you more present. And that's true. It does. But it also can make us kinder to ourselves. And then once we have that, we can actually be much kinder to others. Mm. Do you believe that that, um, so you, you, we can be more present and it helps us be kinder to ourselves. Are those related? Like presence gives rise to the capacity to be kinder or how are, are those related in some way you think? I mean, I think, you know, within the practice, yes, because, you know, what are we, okay. Everyone says, I'm going to just be with the body breathing. I'm going to learn to be present. When I drift off, I'm given a choice, essentially. Do I perpetuate self-aggression? Do I beat myself mm -hmm. up over that? Or do I treat myself with unconditional friendliness and I come back and I train in that? So I think they're very related. And I mm -hmm. do think, you know, the more that we are actually present for the world around us in general, the more we are kind to others, you know, that we are just more observant. We're, you know, if we're lost in our own head, I'll give you an example the other day. This is such a bizarre ex example. Um, <laughs> we have a local ice cream truck where no matter what he's doing, he's always blaring the song and he will go by. He, it might even happen while we're on the line today. We might get a preview. Um, <laughs> he goes by twice a day, our, our particular house. <clears throat> and, you know, at first I was sort of like, oh, this is sort of annoying. I was driving the other day. On, uh, there's a few hours on Thursdays that I drive for a local uh, group here that delivers uh, meals to people who um, are either unable to physically leave their home or they just mm -hmm. don't have access to fresh food. <laughs> so there's this wonderful chef locally who cooks a hundred meals and I deliver 25 wow, of them nice. around the neighborhood. So that's, that's, you know, my fun volunteer gig on Thursdays. And I was driving and I was actually running a little late based on just some of the interactions I was having, which was lovely. But then I got stuck behind the ice cream guy. <laughs> and I had this moment of like, no, not this guy right now. And like, someone's like standing in the middle of the street and waving what seemed to be every child in town in front of the car <laughs> right front of to you. go to the yeah. ice cream truck. And I had to catch myself and instead of getting lost in that story of like, oh, I'm late. And this person that I'm late for is going to be really mad at me. Just be like, look at what's going on. Like you're out here trying to actually help other people. You have this wonderful guy who's actually like bringing delight and joy to these kids at the end of the ice cream truck season. Like he's <laughs> making a good living doing like all of these, like, this is wonderful. This is like, why would you? so it's like the sense of when you're present and you drop the story of like, Oh, but what about this? What about that? We're just present for that moment. We say, Oh, there's great joy that can be discovered. There's great kindness that can actually be offered to someone that you might otherwise be annoyed to all of these sorts of things. Mm. So it's a bizarre story, I realize, but you know, this is me no, reconciling me, a great my story. arch enemy of the ice cream truck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was actually thinking about uh, a book or an article or something along the lines of traffic as a spiritual practice because mm -hmm. uh, of that sort of thing. Is that a, and you, I mean, we encounter it all the time. Some guy pulls out in front of you or somebody's behind you. Oh my God, he made me late. I have to you know, I'm going to miss this. I'm going to sit here at this light for two minutes doing nothing because that guy wasn't paying attention. Like the world is really an unjust place and I'm sitting in my righteous indignation about it. And, or it's like, I can just be present and look at the tree and notice the dog and see the sky. Now, which of those moments would I really rather have, you know? And, uh, and so it's like, there is a, you know, the, there is something to what you're saying in terms of being present enough to realize, oh, I, I can have a choice here rather than just being driven in reactivity. So I, I really fully appreciate your point of view, particularly the 
kids and ice cream. I mean, what could be more fun, right, than that if yeah. you can get into the spirit of it? That's exactly and right. And then at the same time, it can be annoying. <laughs> and what we're talking about right now is like, what choices do we make with our mind? And yeah. I was on the line with the meditation student earlier today, and we were just sort of talking about, you know, just some of the ways that she treats herself. And uh, she was sort of saying, well, this happens to me and that happens to me. And I was like, but who, who determined that? And she goes, well, it's me. It's me telling myself these stories. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, she realized like, oh, the beauty of meditation is that she's making certain choices with her mind and she's starting to notice them. And maybe yeah. I don't have to make the choices that actually keep me trapped in doubt or trapped in fear and all of these sorts of things. So, um, you know, not to keep bouncing among stories, but I, I do think that this is uh, a really good realization that once we start meditating, we say, oh, anxiety, for example, isn't something that just happens to me. It's something that I say, oh, I'm going to choose to spend a lot of my day lost in what if stories lost mm -hmm. in, you know, it's going to go like this and then that's going to, everything's going to be horrible and so on and so forth. Or we choose, as you just said, to acknowledge those stories, to come back to the present and within the present moment that fear doesn't exist in the present moment. I mean, maybe if you mm -hmm. literally are live somewhere where someone jumps out from behind a tree every minute, you have some fear, but you know, like for many people, I'll say, you know, for many people who are not in deeply traumatic situations, um, that there is this element of um, we can have the ability to relax, but we often perpetuate whatever suffering and stress comes up in such a way that we hold ourselves in a state of anxiety. So, mm -hmm. you know, your landlord knocks on the door and says, rent has been due, what's going on? And that is a stressful situation. I do not deny it. It is different than then spending every day and all hours of that day until you pay the rent saying, well, this person's wrong and I'm right. And here's what's going to go happen. Here's where, why everything's shit and all of that. Mm -hmm. The landlord didn't ask you to do that. He just asked you to deliver the money. He didn't ask you to cause mm -hmm. yourself constant stories that keep you locked in anxiety until you did so. That is you that is doing that. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. there's something around taking ownership of our own minds here where we actually do need to start to think about um, like the choices we make and can we make better choices so that we don't keep ourselves locked in pain because no one else is asking us to do it. It's just us that's doing that. Yeah. And, but first you have to be able to make a choice, right? So, so there's like, uh, how, how is it that mindfulness can cr help you be in that place? Yeah. So, what we talked about earlier in the formal mindfulness practice, and uh, I should define some terms here. Let me jump back a moment. When we talk about mindfulness, as you know, often in the West, we're talking about being present to what's currently occurring without judgment, which is, you know, those last two words are actually significant. We can come back to them, but you know, the way that we cultivate mindfulness is there's myriad ways, but a lot of them can be reinforced, let's say, and the foundation can be built to be mindful in other ways of our life if we're doing mindfulness meditation. And I'll come back to what mindfulness meditation, well, I'll just stay on course. So that's what the meditation that we were talking about that I started doing when I was a kid, right? That sense of like, okay, I'm with the breath. I acknowledge when I drift off into what if thinking or thoughts about what's going to happen with the landlord or whatever. And then I come back to my breath. Mm -hmm. I acknowledge the thought, I come back to the breath. That's why all these studies are like, yeah, we're retraining, rewiring the brain, creating new neural pathways that say, I don't have to chase after every anxiety producing thought that comes up. 
that's really helpful in the rest of my life. So when we do want to do mindfulness as other activities, we want to do mindful eating, we want to do a mindful walk, we want to be mindfully in conversation with our loved one, we're more able to be present and we're more able to notice that we've drifted off and we start thinking about other things and we come back because we've trained the mind to do that already. It doesn't feel like such a stretch to do mindfulness elsewhere because we've been training in it in mindfulness meditation. Mm -hmm. And so because you've just done this attention, pulling back your attention time and time and time again, that that's helping you create the space so that whenever you get under stress, you can bring your attention back because you've practiced it. And then you have it. And then at that moment, you can see what's going on and you can say, oh, I have a choice about whether I want to be in the thing I'm reacting to or I can do something else. Yes, that's exactly it. And that's the choice. Exactly. And so in that moment, then what and this is where kind of where my heart and soul sort of lives. It's like, OK, now you've done the hard work of creating the capability to be in this place where, okay, I, I'm, I notice that I'm being reactive or I want to be reactive and I'm going to make a choice here and I have a choice. What now? What does that then make possible? Yeah. I mean, I always joke that no one wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I just sort of want to be a jerk and not connect with anyone in my life. Right. But we <laughs> often fall into bad patterns because we are really hung up on, you know, the anxiety of the day and we're not actually paying attention to the world around us and we end up spacing out and we end up doing all sorts of maybe careless things or just staring at our phone a lot because we don't want to actually deal with what's right in front of us. So there's this aspect here that it comes out of meditation that's known as discernment and there's something really powerful to it. So let's say I'm meditating and I have this thought, you ought to call your mother. I come back to the breath. Hmm. You know, you know, you really should call your mother. You're, you're horrible, so you never call her. No. Come back to the breath. <laughs> well, you know, if you were going to call her, what would you even talk about right now? Come back to the breath. And we do that. Maybe this is one day. Maybe this is the, over the course of this week, of, of a week. It comes up multiple times. We end up um, at some point getting up off the meditation cushion and saying, yeah, maybe I should actually call my mother. <laughs> That's something I want to do. Or a better example would be, um, you know, you sleep in late and you're very groggy as you're sitting there meditating. You say, oh my gosh, I soon keep staying up so late. And after a certain number of days like that, you might similarly say, I want to make a change and I want to cut down on that. So we start to learn what aspects of our life we want to cultivate more of a relationship to and which ones we want to cut out or perhaps even reject or cut down on. And we, just by getting to know the mind better, we're actually starting to make those better choices more naturally. Mm -hmm. It just starts to inform the activity. The aspiration of, yeah. oh, yeah, I should do that, becomes the activity of actually following through. Mm, I love that very much because, um, you know, it sort of brings into focus that the what to do becomes clear from when you when you land in more of what's true for you and you get more in touch with your your actual experience in the moment than sometimes what you ought to be doing. Cause a lot of times people, and when I'm a coach, you know, some people can, what should I be doing? And of course, right. as a mindfulness coach, well, what you should be doing is getting more in touch with who you are. And then what you should be doing just sort of reveals itself. And so you, I think you just said that in a, in a very elegant way. Yeah. Nice. But I mean, that's a beautiful thing to encourage people to do because I think that same 
sort of thing we were talking about around the pandemic. When is this going to be over? People want the solid answer. And yeah, yet, of course. To turn to someone and actually sort of reflect back that we have a lot of answers within us, that we actually do possess wisdom inside of us that we can contact. And meditation, you know, it's very helpful for that. It helps us get out of the neurotic mind that's always trying to ruminate about what could go wrong and to just be present and open enough that we start to see what could be skillful and helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, what a re- it's sort of like within us is this resource that can help us be skillful and helpful, and we just need to access it. And what kind of a world would it be? How would it improve your world and the world around you? if we could just connect more to that. So that's a, that's a beautiful ambition and, and yeah. motivation. I mean, there's the old Dalai Lama quote saying that there'd be peace in a generation if every eight-year-old learned how to meditate. And I think that's about right. It's not even like that they would all start <laughs> beaming light out of their eyes or anything. It's just that they would stop <laughs> creating so much harm for themselves and others. And that's a big part of it. Well, totally. Yeah. So what are you working on these days? What's, uh, what's on your, uh, you know, what's, what's got your excitement and got your passion moving? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a handful of things. So my most recent book did come out, uh, just a few months ago called take back your mind, Buddhist advice for anxious times. And it is very much based on what we've been talking about on, you know, we sort of meandered into it somehow, but the idea of taking our mind back, making better choices with our mental state so that we actually are less held in that state of tension, of anxiety, and more able to become present and responsive in skillful ways. And so there's a lot of both meditation advice, but also just on the spot techniques in that book around, mm. you know, catching ourselves when we're in the midst of a, telling ourselves the same story 50 times in a row. Well, maybe the conversation will go this way. Maybe it'll go that way. That we catch ourselves mm-hmm. and we can actually either do some somatic work, working with the breath, or even just become inquisitive with our experience, asking ourselves, is this still helpful? Is this useful? Can you actually mm-hmm. alleviate some of, well, no, actually this isn't. If I listen to myself, no, this isn't helping me. Well, then why am I doing mm-hmm. it? I can let it go more easily. So there's a lot of on the spot techniques, if you will, in addition to formal and traditional meditation techniques that are in there so that we can actually take the mind back and, and rewire it away from anxiety, make better choices with our mind. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, you know, I, every time around this time of year, I start to gear up for the big thing that I do. So starting in January every year, uh, for the last four years, I've run something called the Buddhist immersion, which is just five months of intense Buddhist studies for people who want to go wow. really deep with both meditation and where it came from. Well, where mm-hmm. mindfulness meditation came from at least. So that's um, sort of a big endeavor and a heavy lift all the time, but it's also really wonderful. Last year, we had 100 people from 14 different countries take place nice. and be in community together, which is such a wonderful thing that we can do. We've sort of done well at this point online. Um, so for you know anyone who is interested in those sorts of things, they're always welcome to, to join our community. And... So how would they find you if they were interested in such a thing? Yeah, the nice thing about having a name like Lodra Rinsler is that it, you get all of the domains early enough. Um, <laughs> so, you know, LodraRinsler.com has all of that information about the book and about the courses and also offering a free course that's uh, in between now and then, which is just sort of that people can get a, a good taste of meditation. If they're new to meditation, that's a good one for them. Um, and um, I'm also on the you know Instagram and Facebook and things like that as well under Lodra Rinsler. I'll put all those links in the show notes as well for people to look you up. 
I've had such a good time talking with you. It's been so fun. I have as well. I really appreciate your work and want to encourage our audience to go out and check out the book. Uh, look him up on his website and the links below. And and thank you so much for joining us on the Language of Mindfulness. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a real fun. So that's a wrap on today's edition of the Language of Mindfulness podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please leave us a review on iTunes and follow along on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. We'd really appreciate it. And check us out at languageofmindfulness.com where you can sign up for a free coaching session. And because we get so many questions on this, you can access how to start a mindfulness meditation practice at languageofmindfulness.com forward slash now. Thanks a ton, and we're looking forward to a lot of great new content coming up as well. Have a great one, and stay present.